0: Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is filmmaker Renika Jayapalan, whose directorial credits include episodes of Workin' Moms, Kim's Convenience, Ginny and Georgia, Sort Of, Son of a Critch, and Children Ruin Everything, and a segment of the 2017 drama Ordinary Days, which you really should check out sometime. Her first solo feature, Stay the Night, stars Andrea Bang and Joe Scarpolino as two young people spending a potentially life-changing evening wandering around Toronto together. It just screened here at the Real Asian Film Festival, and it opens commercially in Toronto and Vancouver this Friday, November 18th. Renica picked The Verdict, Sidney Lumet's 1982 drama, adapted from Barry Reid's novel by hot young playwright David Mamet, starring Paul Newman as Frank Galvin an alcoholic Boston lawyer who finds himself unable to settle a simple medical malpractice case against a Catholic hospital, instead deciding to take the entire Archdiocese of Boston to court in a desperate swing for public justice. Or maybe it's something else. Either way, it offered Newman the opportunity to challenge his own persona against actors as powerful as Charlotte Rampling, Jack Warden, Milo O'Shea, and James Mason. The result was one of the best films of his career. And it's not just me saying that. This is Someone Else's Movie.
1: I've always loved this movie and I think I picked it because for me, it's a perfect film. Um, It's three filmmakers working at the top level of their craft. So, you know, the writer screenwriter, David Mamet, director, Sidney Lumet, and um, obviously Paul Newman. Um, And I just, I think the script is classic Hollywood structure, but done so well, like just perfect but uh, and then the direction and then the acting and then all of the departments and keys just added to it. And I think, you know, it's, yeah, it's like, you know, 1981, almost 41 years, I guess. Um, But it just, I feel like it holds up. I feel like movies like this aren't made anymore. Um, And it also has that um, uh I get sucked into it every time. Like it's a David and Goliath story, this lawyer, alcoholic, has been, this sort of courtroom drama, but it really is this redemption story, this personal story, which I always connect to. It's also like I aspire to make this kind of movie. Like that's the kind of movie, this is the kind of movie I'd, I'd love to make one day in my career.
0: It is so unique in its in its sort of standing because I was reading the reviews at the time and I I just rewatched it last night. Hadn't seen it in about, I don't know, 20 years or so, I would guess. Um, and I had just been having a conversation with somebody about Sidney Lumet and, uh, specifically Dog Day Afternoon and how it's a film that cares so much about every character. And the other thing about Dog Day Afternoon to me is the is the New Yorkness of it all, where it is the, the most quintessentially New York film where everybody in it just wants to be getting on with their day and has no time for any <laughs> of the stuff that's happening. And so, you know, that's 1975 and it's based on a true story and it's got all this electricity. And then he makes Network, which is another yeah. film of the moment in its way, yeah. but maybe tries a little too hard to be stylistic instead. And this felt like This is what he does. This is what Lumet does. Except that he doesn't sympathize with everybody in this one. There's a very clear line between the people we care for and the people who are in their way.
1: Yeah, and he's so. I mean, he's such a. I guess you know, cliche actors director. Like performances across all of his films are just amazing, Mm. and he never. I, I love him as a director because he's not flashy. And then maybe when in in some of those films, his last film um, before the devil knows you're dead, I felt like he was, is this a Sidney Lumet movie? Like it, it was so like flashy and weird, like lighting cuts and editing, but this one is just classic elegant um, style. His blocking is amazing. His, his masters are, are hold a full scene and feel robust enough and you don't even realize that they're masters, you know, or that they're just one take or one shot. Um, but yeah, Sidney Lumet, like he's one of my all time favorite directors that I, I, I would love. I love his, his directing style because it it forefronts your characters, the story, the acting. Um, and as a director, you're, you're there, but you're not in the way.
0: Yeah. He is never present like yeah. in an in an annoying way, I, I think Mamet is probably more present as a screenwriter yes. just because some of his stuff is so signature. Yeah. Um, even then, this was I think he this is his third feature script yeah, that re- and third, and he
1: third. Yeah. He, yeah. And uh, you know the history of it, this movie is that Mamet did adapted the the book, and um, and then it went it went it was with another director, and then another very big actor. I think it was Redford. Actually, it
0: was. So. Yeah. Redford, and um, originally it was Arthur Hiller, who yes. was sort of the less interesting Lumet. Like he was a good yeah. technician and made a lot of the movies that people think Sidney Lumet made right. <laughs> in the 60s yeah. and 70s, but they're not his. Um, and then for a little while, this I find absolutely fascinating, Redford took it to Sidney Pollack without telling the producers.
1: Um, yes.
0: Who were, you know, like Zanuck and Brown, the guys that made Jaws.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think Redford was working it and didn't, because, you know, the, the character that, uh, you know, Frank Galvin, uh, which Newman plays is, he's an alcoholic. He's messy. He's, he's, has been through the ringer. He's, he's not, not attractive in the beginning. He's not, I think Redford wanted to take out all all that stuff and make him this sort of glory, like, you know,
0: like a young crusader.
1: Yeah. This crusader, this cause. But what I love about, like Newman is, and I think, I think the history is that, and then I guess that, that didn't work out with, with Redford and Sidney Pollack. And then Sidney Lumet came in and like read red, and then had like other writers come in and then, and then Sidney Lumet took the, like found, like, what's the first draft? It was like David Mamet, no, let's, let's make this. Yeah. And, um and then Newman, I think quickly attached to it, but Newman's just like, love it everything. He, he looks, I don't know, I can't remember what the movie was before he did this, but he looks older in this movie. I guess he came back and he looked, the hair is a bit longer, a bit whiter, a bit more gray. He looks older. He just, it's such a, I always think of like, what actor, you know, one you know, 20 years from now, what actor can I put an actor in like this role that was sort of like a Newman-esque um, person and bring them back and like put them in a role like, like The Verdict. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just a, it's just for me a perfect movie.
0: Yeah, it was a real turning point for Newman who had just, I think the one before this was Absence of Malice, which nobody really remembers terribly well. He plays a guy who gets uh, smeared by a journalist. I think, if I remember correctly. Sally Field is an overambitious journalist and she puts him in the forefront of a story about um, dirty business and, and he sues to get, basically he does everything he can to get his reputation back. It's been, that's been forever since I've seen it. This is Paul Newman realizing he's getting old and having to, to, steer into it mm-hmm. i think in a really interesting way and he's he's got just the right self-awareness to show us a little bit of the paul newman thing uh, to show us how frank's been coasting right like this is how he hasn't gone under he's just charming enough that people are happy to see him even though he's a useless messy drunk yeah um he can still hit on women because yeah. also because it's 1982 and you know that, yeah. that was a thing but um the, the world he navigates is still sort of tolerating him because he's really, cause, like, because he's secretly Paul golden, Newman.
1: He was a golden boy. And, like, yeah, yeah, there is something. It's his history as an actor, as, as you know, a very good looking, you know, person kind of all lends itself to this movie at that time in his life. And, um, and the audience, I mean, as I'm watching it, I, I instantly connect to him. You know, even at his worst, when he's like, you know, the beginning first couple of scenes, he's he's going to funerals and like giving his card to the widow, like ambulance chasing for like cases. He's got he's got no cases. And um, really pathetic. And I think it's and, and then like his friend Mickey or like former boss or lawyer, co-lawyer, like drags him. Like he's like he's like passed out in his office a drunken night, and he Mickey like just drags him by the collar around the room to the couch. And it's just like it, everything is just so down and and A loser, but it's Paul Newman. So you can't, you know, he's not really a loser. But it just still feels real, still feels authentic, and yeah, it was great casting.
0: Yeah, and um, yeah, Jack Warden is as Mickey as I think he's his former teacher. There's a there's a reference in the dialogue somewhere to how like the best you had a great teacher. So either he was a law professor and then became this guy's.
1: I thought they worked. I thought they were like in in the in the firm together. That Mickey retired or something. Was that is that not it? Something like that.
0: Yeah, maybe it's implied that they've they've had a business relationship a number of times, but I still don't fully know what that club is that Frank goes yeah, and they, gets Mickey out of. It's yeah, just some it's shady are, yeah. room.
1: Yeah, it's like old lawyers and do it. I don't know, who knows, but uh, but yeah, Jack Warden is 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 doing the best what what he does, which is you know that sidekick, you know, um, telling the truth. This is how it is. Um, but yeah, it, just about the other roles in the movie like you said everyone has every every role in this movie i think has something like has an actor a character actor uh shines even even the 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 the, um the plaintiff who's who's comatose in a bed and like um when the scene where paul newman you know sort of changes his mind is that he i mean we haven't even talked about what the movie is about so hopefully that's okay so, so the movie the the scene, which I think is like the act one turning point where uh, Paul Newman goes to his client's hospital room and it's this comatose Deborah NK, and she's lying there comatose and, and pipes and tubes, you know, in her and everything. And he takes a Polaroid as if that's going to be his evidence to show, to make his case for a plea and, or a, what
0: do you call it? Yeah. A
1: settlement. Yeah. And, um, there's no, there's there's no dialogue until the end of that that scene. It is the best scene, and it is the best acting. Paul, I don't know what Paul's doing nothing. He's just taking these Polaroids and it's all inside, all these wheels turning, and you see that change. And it's like an amazing turning point for, for a film. Because you're also like from up until that moment, everyone's like, you know, the the, the plaintiff wants to, the, you know, her her brother, her sister and her brother-in-law want to settle who, who the ones taking the case um you know he kind of wants to sell because he wants the money yeah, you know? the
0: archdiocese wants right? to make it go away
1: everyone wants to settle and then that that scene turns you know frank galvin around and he realizes actually i can't settle this is the case i gotta i gotta win this case i'm her lawyer and yeah this is From- the case for me this is the case that's going to turn my life around too
0: yeah, from a screenwriting position, too, it's almost poisonous, right? Because there's no dialogue, there's no motivation. We never get a speech about why. It's just there. And Mamet trusts, like, he trusts the director who wasn't Lumet at the time, but on the page, like, you have to trust that the filmmakers will get it and then the actor will carry it. And then Lumet trusts Newman and Newman just gets. Yeah, the, the thing that he does watching it again this time around, it was just like, oh, he softens and then he's horrified. And it's not until he hesitates taking that third picture, yeah, that's that's the key for me, where he just his whole body changes, but he never utters a sound. It's the and we don't really get to see the pictures up close, which I think is another really yeah. elegant we do see thing them. that we see them developing. We see them, but we don't like. There's never a really clear. The camera itself does not get close enough to the pictures. Yes, they sto- still sort of abstract, and we yes. never really see Deborah's face.
1: Yeah. I was trying to think of that scene. I think it it works because there it's just a, cl- like again, classic screenplay structure in that scene as well. There's a beginning, middle, and end. He's coming yeah. in, he's like, okay, I'm gonna take this, gonna take this picture. Like, great, got this picture. This is gonna get, prove my settlement, give me, you know, prove it right. And then we're gonna clear this off the table. And then he, the second picture, and it's like, okay, there's something a little bit off. And then it's like you said that third picture, another turning point. And then he sits down on the bed, and then these nurses kind of like or like talking and coming, but like, he can't be in there, you know, literally you can't be in there. Like, this is going to work. And, um, and he says the only line that he says in the, in the scene is like, um, I'm a, her, I'm a her attorney. I think that's yeah. what he says. And the way he says it is, is perfection because for me, it's like, he doesn't feel worthy. He is her attorney, but he doesn't feel worthy of it. And it's kind of like, I got to earn, I got to earn this and earn myself. And, um, but then I think the next scene is him at the archdiocese, with the Bishop going yep. over there, giving him the settlement and he's, he's noticed. And then all of the, the reasoning why he's decided to take the case comes in there, but yeah. it's a beautiful scene. It's just, you're right. They, they each had to like, trust each other, trust the script. Um, who knows that that, you know, a studio note or a network note would be like, Hey, we need to know why he's changing his mind. This is like the turning point. And, um, but I feel like everything before that Seen um, scene um, fuels that decision in such a beautiful way. The stakes are so high. And then you're like, well, what's the worst thing that could happen if he doesn't try this case? It's like, I was lost. That is the worst thing.
0: Yeah. And it's just a single human life, too, right? It's not one of those giant... I mean, it's implied that this will happen again, that, that the, the hospital is set up in order to protect... The doctors who've made this mistake and maybe made it again or will make it again have made it before all of that um and it's on that level it's about institutional responsibility but there's never a speech about that either there's no speech about how punitive damages work to prevent this from happening again and i've seen that speech a hundred times
1: and i love that there's no speech like that because i love that it's this is personal and I don't know. I think, I think maybe nowadays you want that big speech, you know, like spotlight had that big speech that Mark yeah. Ruffalo makes in it. And like, and, 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 but this is, this is just these small kind of moves and it's all internal. Like you see it. He, I mean, the big speech comes at the end of the movie when he, when he's doing his summation, his final closing remarks. Um. And we could talk about that too later, but sure. that's, that's probably the biggest speech. And then um but that's also the all is lost. Like this is, we've lost this case. I'm just going to say what I feel and, and give it. That's it. I'm not going to try to win anymore. This is the truth. And, um, but yeah, I I, I think that's why I, I, I connect to this movie. It's, it's, it's personal for him and the movie forefronts that over the case, but in a fine way, not in a bad way. And, giving equal weight but we kind of really don't really know who who the defendants are who those doctors are there's two of them but i only see you only see one yeah we only, only ever see vague. one you know we really get to know frank and his story and and um yeah along for the ride for sure
0: yeah and frank's story is also complicated by the relationship he starts to form with laura the woman played by charlotte rampling which simultaneously is like David Mamet's worst instincts as a writer and also Charlotte Rampling being amazing. And yeah. so I'm constantly conflicted every time I see Wait, that.
1: What, why do you, why, why you don't like, you don't like her character in terms of how she's, she's sort of sleeping with, she like sleeps with with trying to get information and then like that kind of angle.
0: The honey That's trap thing. Well, I mean, it's, yeah. I don't doubt that that was fairly popular Um in the, in the seventies and eighties in the, in, you know, in, I'm sure it's still done now in, in law firms, God help us. And, and, you know, places like uh, consultancies. Yeah. But my problem with it is that Rampling is so strong an actor and so powerful a presence, especially opposite Newman. I mean, they are both remarkable physical specimens. Yes. Right. Like just looking at them is interesting and yeah. like her cheekbones can cut his face off. Yeah. Um, and the, the, that plus the age difference and the Boston aspect of it all, she is so too good for him. Yeah. I mean, she is the only reason, like, it, it, it's a tell that, that she has it's an ulterior that you think motive. She's
1: so good for him because, I, I mean, she's quite flawed as well. I mean, she's also an alcoholic. She's also, you oh, know. No, no, no. She's
0: too good. She's so too good for him. She's so obviously outclassing him on every level. She's oh, so much better know, put, put together as, as well as a character.
1: As a character.
0: The one thing that's missing from the film, to my mind, is a speech where she explains how she ended up with him at all. Because right. that one moment towards the end where she says, I can't invest in losers, yeah, that's real, I think.
1: She yeah, started think to fall definitely.
0: for him and develop a real relationship. But he is too sozzled to land her more than, for more than one night, the way the film sets him up. Like, there's a way to parallel Frank's reawakening to life itself with the possibility of experiencing a real relationship with this person, but she's so underwritten that, like, she's... Yeah. Rampling is so good at playing the coldness behind Laura, the calculation, yeah. and in retrospect, you see it right off. Um, that's the thing that's missing, that the character doesn't exist and she is doing everything she can to build one.
1: This is true, and she does an amazing job. Like, mm-hmm. in the moment... You see her in that bar on her own. You're like, who is that? Like, I mean, I think she's got with this red scarf. Like, she's the only thing that sort of stands out with color in that in that scene. Yeah. Um, and he goes right to her, like a you know a moth to a flame. Um, but you know, I'm okay with her being that kind of character, and because it's kind of like, oh, this is sort of the love interest, and then when there is that twist, what I call it a twist, that she's really been um, a mole and 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 feeding information from 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 Frank's side to the, mm-hmm. the to the defendants, it's like wow, like oh, okay, this all kind of fits. And then you, and you if you watch, rewatch the movie, and to watch her performance, amazing because all of those moments where you can see that she's maybe oh, here she was maybe acting at first, like just shy and just being cold, but like she was kind of fishing for information a little bit, and it's it's really really great.
0: Yeah, uh-huh. she's terrific. That I think the problem is that Mamet as a writer, and maybe this is more me being a retrospective critic than anything else. He's just not interested in women in this film. Like,
1: although everyone, every, there are a lot of women in the movie. There's Mm -hmm. like, there's, there's the Deborah NK, the the woman in in the coma. There's um, her sister, which I think Roxanne Hart plays her. Yes. And she's great. She's the sister. who just wants to move on, but is so torn. And and maybe all of those. And then, you know, there's, there's Charlotte Rampling, Laura, and then there's,
0: the two um, nurses,
1: the, the two nurses. So Lindsay Kraus is the is the, but I think maybe maybe all the sensitivity and all of the dimension at all, but maybe more was added by Sydney Lumet and found in that, and so that was a nice kind of pairing with Mamet gives the structure and the and the and the the bolts and the nuts and everything to do that, and then Sydney Lumet really kind of carves out some really great performances.
0: Yeah, well, he gives people. I'm thinking of Rooney, uh, Maureen Rooney, who's played by Julia Bavasso, the, the attending nurse who's just angry, just furious, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and has nothing but rage, but is given the humanity behind it because she's hurt.
1: Yeah. Like she, only the, has, she only has two scenes. Two scenes, yeah. And like the one scene, that first one, I was watching it, and she's like, you could tell, like, you know, her, maybe her direction was like, you're just shutting him down. You're closed. They're literally, they're in a door. In the door frame they're talking between the door talking to each other, and you just close, and then the end of and the scene she closes the door on him and and it, but the next scene they're they're in a they in a, sh- a chapel
0: yeah in a hospital hospital and chapel
1: she's vulnerable, like it's just beautiful pairing of scene and locations um and uh she's vulnerable she's open she's uh unprepared, and you get you get a, a, a character from those two opposite kind of interpretator like yeah scenes. so um
0: yeah. Well, and yeah. the way Galvin reaches out to her too, literally grabbing her yes. arm, but not in a hostile way, just, you know, almost I need your help sort of moment yes. and, and gives her the space to talk as opposed to pushing himself in, in front of her the way he did in the yes. first scene. It's even that just sort of tracks on the scale of his own evolution and, and yeah. development as a, as
1: a better person. And I think it's like, that's why I love Sydney Lumet. It's just, it's the direction, the approach is so subtle. You know, these aren't things that are in your face. Look at, look at this. And it's, it's craft. It's really high level of craft and it's confidence in your storytelling and it's not getting in the, in the way. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh Well, and understanding what each actor brings too, because the, the other thing that I kept thinking about this time through was Newman has to calibrate to the, like, I've, I've never seen another actor who is better at understanding what the audience will take away from what he's doing. He's just, he has this incredible ability to play to the camera, even when he's not even facing it. He just, yeah. he, he has a way of showing us um, and he never got enough credit for being the kind of actor that he was. Um, even, you know, early on, he came out of the actor studio, I think. Yeah, I think so. And when you go back and look at all of his work, like cool hand Luke, where he's just
1: yeah, or HUD.
0: engaging with the camera HUD, where he's not like, he's turning off the charisma yeah. to, to direct it elsewhere. And here, this is a this is a performance where he's keeping it all together like by a, a fraying thread we understand like that there's that great little visual bit where his hand is shaking too much to pick up the the shot yeah and then the rest of the movie has that level of wobbliness to him like he finds a way to do it in his eyes without doing it in his body he never plays drunk which is incredible
1: yes no it's, I think I think the thing is when you play drunk you're playing not you're trying to play sober mm. that's that's sort of the, the method and yeah he's he's just so good I mean um even like that opening the opening of the movie which I'm sure they stole from later footage but it's it's the credits and it's just him at a, that pinball machine in the bar mm-hmm. and we're just a slow trap you know slow dolly in on him while while the credits in bright red are, are there, and you know we hear the 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 ping and the pong of the of the of the, of the machine of the game and and yet he's just what is he thinking? I'm like, what is he thinking? And we're and we're like going closer to him, and that's that's the movie. So yeah. yeah, he doesn't need to do much. And I think I think I heard I could watch like on YouTube or whatever like a video of him like some like promotional footage of like them making the movie or whatever, and they interviewed him and he, and, and he was like. It's this movie is, I'm not doing anything. I'm just being, I, I think it was probably very, you know, not in a heart. Not in, it's not a bad thing to say, but easy. Like it was, a, it was, he he had all of these, it's not like a culmination of all of his experience and life and bringing it to the table. And, and it was, uh, I think he, it sounded like from that interview had a, a really great time on the movie working it. And, and you can tell, it can, not, he's not, he's not in the way of that, but you can, You just, like, I, as a viewer, I'm just enjoying it. Just enjoying all of his performances.
0: Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest Shiny Things newsletter, my twice-weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I wrote about the 4K and Blu-ray releases of Top Gun Maverick and Jordan Peele's Nope, as well as Sony's latest Columbia Classics 4K set, which, whew, Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io, or find a link at the Semcast Twitter account. Did you miss me writing about movies? I did. Come check it out. They
1: never worked together again, though. Did they never work together? Did they? I
0: don't think so. I think this was yeah. their one because he he started making fewer films after.
1: Yeah, he, when we did the Color of Money. Like that was the one he won the Oscar for.
0: Right. Oh, and we'll we can talk about the unfairness of the whole Oscar thing. I mean, I know, like, yes. as, as, as much as I enjoy Ben Kingsley in Gandhi and he is, yeah. it's a good yeah. performance. This is a great one.
1: This is a great one. This is a career making. And I think Paul Newman, I mean, I'm, I, I love the Oscars, you know, I had a time obsessed with the Oscars, but Paul Newman, I think when I've seen footage of like, he was there for the verdict at the Oscars, but then when the color of money came and he was nominated, he didn't, he didn't show up. He's like, I'm not, fuck this. I'm not going to win. <laughs> um, they're never going to give me to this Oscar and whatever. So he didn't show me that he won for, for for the color
0: of money. Yeah, and it's so one yeah. of those weird things too, where even there, the argument was that he was his his makeup win because it was obviously so obviously for the verdict. Yeah, uh, his makeup win deprived James Woods of an Oscar for Salvador, which I would maybe argue with now, but subsequently James Woods has demonstrated that he's not you know I don't <laughs> deserving of much. So I think we can let that slide.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, but no, I'm I'm just double checking here. He did not, as far as I can tell. Yeah, they never worked together again. I was going to say, though, um, the thing that I never would have understood, and this is my own little story. I met Paul Newman. I interviewed him on The Junket oh, in wow. 94 for, for Nobody's Fool. And he is, I mean, I've met a lot of famous people over yeah. the years. It's just the job. Yeah. He is maybe... The single most charismatic human being I ever met in my entire life.
1: It so, was—is so is he just so comfortable in his skin, like he's just like so grounded and like casual with everyone, and like just himself? Is that that what was
0: part of it, but also, and this is for nobody's fools. So he's in his sixties. He's, you know, he's a, he's not who he used to be. I can't imagine what it would have been like to meet him in like nineteen seventy-two. Yeah, um, but. It was a junket situation. So we're in the, the Riga Real on 54th Street, which is now in New York, which is now the London, I think, uh, on a high floor in one of those big, you know, rooms where they take out all the furniture and they put in a big round table. And there's 10 of us around the around the table, and they bring in the talent. And then they bring the talent out and we cycle through it. So Melanie Griffith was part of it, and Richard Russo um, and Robert Benton. And it was, it was a really good junket, full stop. And there was this little lull because that happens sometimes, you know, like the next person doesn't come out of the classroom that fast. So you're all just sort of sitting around. And then. It was the most bizarre animalistic thing that this reaction that I've ever experienced where you felt the hair on the back of the person's neck next to you go up and it oh. was all the way down the hall. He was come, He had turned the oh, corner and everyone was reacting to him. Wow. And then he came in and holy shit this is this is what it looks like this is what it is yeah i really can't get my head around watching him act in a crowd scene just because if he's doing that to 10 people what must it be like
1: that's right yeah
0: how are you supposed to believe this guy can't command a room in a trial
1: yeah that's what yeah.
0: that's what he does yeah. he can actually turn it off he could find a way to channel it like we know that's paul newman on yeah. screen no one else has eyes like that no one else has a jaw like that and even frank elvin at his worst is still Paul Newman in there, right? So yeah. it's this incredible trick of using his own charisma and his own history against it, mm-hmm. uh, which he does again in Nobody's Fool, and, and even better, I think, because that's someone who's never amounted to anything as opposed to Galvin, yeah. who, who was someone.
1: <laughs> I haven't seen that movie in a long time, Nobody's Fool, but from what I remember, it's a quite a playful kind of character as well. He has He's having fun. Is, it, is, it, is it Jessica Tandy in it? but I think I remember those scenes, but those would have been fun. She was, she was older and like, there was an interesting dynamic there too. And, but.
0: um, Yeah. He plays a no account. Like he's somebody who's never, who's just this, this charming failure uh, in a small upstate New York, or Pennsylvania town. And he has to sort of, he's confronted with the grandson he never knew he had from the son that didn't want to spend much time with him. And it's just about, again, it's about somebody reawakening to life. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a very comfortable place for him after the verdict, I think. But yeah. he is, oh, he's so good in it. He's, he, I'm so glad I got to meet him on that one and talk about that film because it's, he's, he said, like, it's, it's pretty much exactly what you said about the verdict where he's just existing.
1: He's just, where existing. Yeah. all he's
0: doing, I think the way he put it was, all I'm doing is messing with everybody who comes on screen.
1: <laughs> right.
0: And yeah, and, I, mean, I
1: think maybe actors, you know, I feel like it's interesting as you watch some actors who've done a lot of stuff and then as they get into their career, find like, I just need to just be, I don't need to do a lot. You know, one of my you know, a performance I, I really was amazed by in recent years was Anthony Hopkins in The Father. Mm-hmm. You've seen that movie, which is, you know, a, a horror movie basically. <laughs> but um, he's, and I heard about him talking about that role where it was just like, he didn't do much it's just being, but he's, he's great in that heartbreak. My mom had Alzheimer's and I, so I understand with that perspective and, but that he was just heartbreaking in that movie, but just, just being. And I think, I think as, you know, I think as an actor, I I, I get to, I'm so privileged. I get to work with actors and direct actors and talk to them and get to know them. And I love just to know who the actor is as a person. And as a director, just trying to get them to be that. Yeah. Or shades of that or sides of that or whatever. And it's just when you're just being on screen is when the real stuff really happens.
0: Yeah, it's it's remarkable to see that unlock, right? To know somebody a little bit and then watch yeah. them tilt it into a different direction. Um, when it happens, it is, and I think it always reads. Like yeah. either there there are actors who aren't taking direction and resist, sometimes yeah. you can tell. And then right. there's, there are people who lean into some part of themselves and, and find a purity, or like a better version or a worse version of themselves. But I, I always come back to, again, I, I, I've, been, I've been incredibly fortunate in my career to meet all these legends. Robert Duvall once just casually said the secret to acting is you just have to be you underneath. Mm, and it's so simple and it sounds preposterous. Until you see an actor like Newman or or Duvall, like who's done that their entire career, and you look back and you realize there's these are like these minor variations on notes that they're doing. Um, and the other the other person I think of, the only other actor I think who could have played Frank Galvin, and it's not Redford, it's Gene Hackman.
1: Oh yeah, Gene uh, Hackman like, would have be been
0: great at that point in time. And watching it again last night, I realized the opening scene of Frank trashing his office is the last scene in the conversation.
1: Oh, right. That's right. Um, <laughs> the apartment, yeah.
0: And it almost yeah. plays. Like, it almost yeah. picks right up. That and I so think true. if it had been Hackman, oh, you God. would have that association in your mind, and it wouldn't work, because this guy isn't, like, that guy was a bugger. He's not a he's not a lawyer. That would make no sense. Yeah. And Newman has just been the all-American, the everyman, the guy who, you know, stands up and is righteous for everything. That to see him try to take an easy case and just get having to be, you know, dragged into doing the right thing... Yeah is so jarring for people. I, I, I mentioned earlier that I looked up some of the reviews and I think it was Ebert at the time who said that, you know, this isn't a thriller. It's more of a character study. And it's like, yeah, what did you, it was, but it, <laughs> it was sort of marketed as a thriller, which makes no sense because that's not what yeah, this well, is. It's like
1: a courtroom drama. That's what's going to get people in and what's going on. And, and, um, but I mean, I think the, I think the film holds up. Like I love the look of the film, mm. but I think, that personal stuff, the redemption story, Newman—that's um, what is—that's what stands, and that's I think what people I think people would connect to. Because like like the the, the courtroom drama stuff really gets going in the last thirty minutes of, of the film, really, where you have you know, people on the on the stand and everything and cross examination, but um, it 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 it's it's
0: yeah I don't know. Um, Yeah. Well, it doesn't, I mean, it's funny because it does, in retrospect, there is a fast pace to it. The whole thing takes place over a couple of months. He's been letting the case sit for a year and a half. And now all of a sudden he's got a court date in two weeks and then it's five days. And then his witness goes missing. And we have this weird collapsing of, I just talked to him a week ago. But because the film is so slow and deliberate and lingers on him, just not moving and being broken and miserable and, and still, I think it feels slower and longer. It feels like this is taking Detied. place over a year, Detied, which I yeah. think is how it feels to Frank.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Cause it, it does, I think the case does take place over three days or something crazy, like, a, or a weekend, like a, you know, Friday, Thursday, Friday, then a weekend and then the Monday or something like that. Mm. But um, yeah, you're right. There, there are all those just shots of just him trying to like figure out what, I, what I should do. But I would also say that every single scene is built on top of the other one and without one of them, like it doesn't like you, like it's just perfect structure of a, of a, a story and they all kind of help. And I've, there's nowhere to hide as like, and I just, you know, I made a, I just made a movie, which is like a you know, romance where there's no montage. There's no bells and whistles. I, I really just want to, ha- I actually made a rule. Like, I don't want to do a montage. I just wanted to like, tell a, a linear story and have an audience, feel that journey as well. And I feel like this movie does that. It's like every single scene builds on each other on, on the one before. And, and that's hard to do. That is not, it looks simple. It seems simple, but it's hard to do because you have nowhere to hide your story plot holes, your mistakes, your, I didn't get this. I didn't, you know, this doesn't make sense in the story. It, everything really needs to hold up and, and that's what this is. So um, I think the verdict. Yeah, like I said, it's a perfect movie because of all those Paul Newman directing. And then really it's it's the screenplay, which yes, is a bit flashy because Mammoth does have his his dialogue and but there's some great lines in the movie too. Like I think James Mason plays the the de, um defense lawyer. And there's that I, I wrote it down, there's a line that um Jack Warden, how he describes him, he's like the Prince of Fucking Darkness, you know. Yeah. It's like, just like that is such a, a mammoth kind of line, and, and it's and then you see James Mason in his like sweater vest and tie, and he's like he's older, and he's you know with his 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 table full of young lawyers and holding court, and um, he's great in the movie too. He's like chewing up every scene, and it's a thrill to watch that as well.
0: Yeah, and the first thing Frank says about him is he's a good man.
1: Yeah, see, that's right, that's right.
0: And Warden just shoots him down.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Which which is great too because it. It also it, it well because it leaves you wondering. At least me, left me wondering: Does Frank actually believe this? Is that just what he says when he doesn't know somebody? Like it's it's implied that Culcanin knows Frank really well, even before the Oppo research. Like they know who he is yeah. and they can count on him maybe, to screw up. Maybe that's
1: maybe that's like Frank is good. You know, he's like he sees the good in people. There's a there's that aspect. There's a there's a forlornness forelo- about that too. Like, well, I don't know. Yeah, he's good. Like he's just. You know, he, he doesn't want to say anything bad, and but yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe that's that's in there.
0: It's because I assume that every line that Mamet writes has meaning. Has meaning. It's, it's yeah. layered with meaning, and the ending too. Like we really should just talk about the the amazing story about the ending, which is that he didn't want the verdict itself because yes. all that mattered was that Frank was going to be okay. Yeah. And
1: what do you think? Th- I, I mean, I I like as you know, I'm watching. Like, I kind of want that verdict. You want that, but I like how. I like how they we get the verdict. We don't know what the settlement is. We just know it's going to be bigger than what was orig- what the original settlement would have been, like a much bigger. And then we have it, it gets undercut by that last scene with the with Frank and Laura in their separate rooms, her in hotel, him in his office, and, and she's calling him with like you know the drink on her chest or something, and yeah. like she's in a bad place, and he's now doesn't answer that phone call. It just keeps ringing and ringing and ringing. And me to black yeah. But, uh, yeah i mean
0: i love that ending
1: yeah it's great
0: it's the it prefigures all the one day at a time speeches you hear about recovering alcoholics that's the, like the fact that he doesn't pick up the phone is the thing that tells me frank's gonna be okay because a lot more money could just mean a lot more booze and you know there were even ebert thought he was sipping whiskey out of a coffee cup but no the whole point is oh, he's just sitting there oh. alone with cold coffee because you never see him stop drinking that's the other oh. genius thing about yes. this there is no moment where he looks at the thing and puts it down or like over the course of the movie he switches from spirits to beer like there's that moment in the the i think it's before he flies out to new york where he just goes and gets a beer out of the fridge at 6 a.m um and it's that little detail rather than waking up with a shot that he's sort of easing himself out of it and maybe he will still be a social drinker or something but there's no speech there's no moment
1: yeah it's a personal choice it's just internal um, I also was when I was rewatching, I noticed that when his first meeting with the arch with the bishop, the archdiocese, and he's he's like going to get they're going to give him the checkbook What the settlement will be. They pour him a little drink, yeah, you know, it's beautiful. But they know they know what his his weaknesses are, his vices are, and they pour him that little drink. And the the, the alcohol is there. I've never thought to do like what's his his alcohol journey, like what drinks is, is he doing? But you're right, it's 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 very quite real. That's the other thing about the movie it feels real it's very even the the lighting is very i love the lighting it's like a painting it's like like a caravaggio painting it's it's such a high contrast between like the light and the shadows and these like jewel tones of church like you know kind of like stained glass colors sometimes um which all goes you know towards all the themes that are going on in the movie
0: yeah. Even the fact that his office has a one window thing with an arch behind it, it kind of looks like a cathedral.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's just floating I there. I don't know if you noticed this. I also noticed that like the elevators never work in the movie. Like people, like, the, the, there's no, you can't, there's no fast way to go up, fast way to go down. You're all, they're always climbing stairs, like mm-hmm. a walk and talks, lots of stairs, um, which is beautifully done. Um, like in the hospital, in the, in his office, he's like climbing up the stairs the elevators work which I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Like that was, you know, all these exposition-y scenes They just sort of walk and talk in top these staircases and hospitals and hallways. And it, yeah. lo- it looks great, but it also has some symbolism there too.
0: Yeah, I mean, it feels like a a city that's being neglected where nothing is nothing is working because nobody cares anymore. Like they've gone, they've gone past the We need to fix this to the, I'll just take the (laughs) stairs. Like everybody just reflexively is disappointed when something doesn't work, but they're used to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then like, so it's, yeah, it's set in Boston. And, and again, the, the locations, I guess maybe this has to do with him doing such great masters or like wide shots that kind of turn into coverage or turn into like, you know, Things, but everyone's such a in such a great. um, He positions people in such a great spot in the frame, Mm. and and there's a real sense of place, and great use of location. I think I I mean I read that it was like shot you know exteriors in in Boston obviously, but then interiors were in New York. I don't always love the set, the interior. Some of the interior sets, like you know his his apartment, feels like kind of like a set to me. (laughs) Mm. Um, <laughs> but yeah. still, it, But but um, like the bar is amazing. I think that's a real bar, and and
0: uh, um. yeah. And when people cross squares and what, you like you feel the bitterness, you feel the cold. I think about something like the friends of Eddie Coyle, where you just people are trapped in that environment. There's no way out, and this is the other end of that. There's a window, and he has to get through it. But he just has to make it through this. He has to thread this needle professionally, personally, all these challenges. I mean, you could. You could, there is a way to do this on stage, but I don't want to see that. I want to see the world. I want to see it built and, and yeah. existing.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I would say like the one thing And I was rewatching it, the one thing I was like, I don't know about this part of it is the score. The score is, is, is cla- again, I think in the, in the 80s, that that was like that, you know, strings, classic orchestra kind of score. Mm-hmm. It is a bit a little didactic, sometimes telling us what we should feel. If I were to make the movie again, this you know, I would something a little different. I always like the I always like the score of the firm, a Sidney Pollock film. Right, it all piano. It's just piano, but not. I'm not saying that for this movie, but the score for me just was a bit retro. But it's it's meant to be invisible too, so that's okay.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's either. I think the problem is that the score isn't used continuously. Yes. Right? Like it's when it's gone, it's great. And when it comes in, it just crashes in because it is, it's so big, but yeah, something more minimalist would probably have served yeah. the, the quiet that Lumet is building. Or yeah. maybe this is like the one concession he made where he was just willing to let the, the studio, like, Oh, people need to feel, okay, fine. Johnny Mandel can do the score. Yeah. But yeah, in, in his, um, in, in making movies, he talks about the verdict mostly from a screenwriting challenge and from the, uh, the managing mammoth challenge. Um, but I don't know that he mentioned, I can't, it's been so long since I've read it. I can't remember if he talks about the score, but it is one thing that feels unnecessary. It's like the one. I
1: almost wish there was no score. Like pull like a Michael Haneke, do no score in the movie because you don't need it. Like everything else is the sound design could have done that. Just like the sound of that city or, or footsteps of like the people in the courthouse and all that kind of stuff really would, would have done it. So it's interesting, but, um. Uh, I was kind of, okay, I don't, this question for you, if you were to, if they were to make this movie or a type of this kind of movie again, this now, yeah, who would play, who could be Newman?
0: It's funny. All of my brain power has been telling me the only way this gets made now is as an eight part miniseries. Oh. Like, because everything, all IP comes back. Yeah. And now it's all about streaming. So I could see like a, now that Disney owns this, it would be a Hulu show and it would probably star, I mean, Cranston's the obvious one.
1: Right, well, he's, in, he's already done a legal thing. Yeah, he's, he's already done now. it,
0: right? And I, I I don't think I want to see him do this anyway. I think Newman is so specific. I would, you know, maybe Denzel Washington, except that he's already sort of done it a couple of times in movies like Flight, where he's played broken people. Yes,
1: yes, and I, I love Denzel, and like there's moments of Denzel, I mean, Denzel is amazing. There's moments that I'm just like wow as an actor, um, but sometimes it can be a little flashy. Sometimes mm. it can be flashy, but um, D- Denzel I think would be yes. I almost think, and I don't know if this isn't a movie that is not similar. It's kind of similar, David versus Goliath kind of story, underdogs. Um, not a personal redemption movie, but someone trying to make up for. For something maybe that they they didn't they didn't get to in their past. it's mm-hmm. the movie Moneyball with Brad
0: Pitt. Oh, sure, yeah.
1: So I always I love Moneyball. I love that movie as well. Not a perfect movie, not like this movie, but has some elements of that. Um, so I feel like you know, Brad Pitt is the only one that could kind of do Interesting. I mean, he's kind of done it already with Moneyball, but you know, that kind of golden boy, which Newman was as well, kind of what when you're older and bringing that history and I don't know I feel like Brad Pitt you know does he have the range does he have the depth or whatever but I think maybe
0: you I could think. certainly do the broken charming guy thing yeah but I I, I want to throw a different curveball in and I would suggest like either Julianne Moore or Jean
1: Smart yes Julianne Moore um I love Julianne Moore but she I think she like this is the typical kind of thing that she would do but that's fair I'd have to I'd have to think more you know um yeah i just saw tar with kate blanchett mm. it was my it's my favorite movie of the year so far and um i i i i think she's a ama- i mean just amazing in it and uh maybe in 20 years kate blanchett could do this.
0: blanchett could do anything really like Tilda swinton maybe also right now could do it um, yeah cuz she's 62 or something impossible right um I'm I'm actively offended at her inability to age. Yeah,
1: age. Like, I know. It's, She looks exactly like she did in Orlando. I you was know, about to say like Orlando just hit
0: its thirtieth anniversary, and I just revisited that for something else. Yeah. And I was like, is it lighting? How do you do that?
1: Yeah, I think it's living living in like northern Scotland or something. Like that's that maybe the air up there is different. I don't
0: know. Yeah, we're someday we're gonna find out. She just goes out and eats an entire sheep. Like she chases and eats a sheep every year yeah. to maintain yeah. this, and and then all the. <laughs> all the light comes away from it uh, before we wander too far off uh i did want to ask though about stay the night because we were talking about this before we started recording and um i just i loved it i think it's a, a perfect encapsulation of what it's like to be young and kind of rootless and not rootless at the same time and what you do in that film with andrea bang what she does for you is track an evolution in much the same way newman does as frank um for yeah and i like that was when you said you wanted to do the verdict the two things that jumped out at me were the sense of place that stay the night has is very very similar to the boston of the verdict where you've basically locked yourself into a small section of toronto that i know really well um which is extra great but the the authenticity with which you you show the city and the warts and all portrait of all the pieces of it that work together from the background of an, the, the, from the backstage of an arena to the, the just waiting for an elevator in a really tall building to the, the small places that the characters find themselves in. And then also the journey that I don't want to spoil for people, but the type of movie it is someone starts in one place and ends in another place. Emotionally, the way that you get banged to do that is very, very precise and very, very small. And when you watch the film a second time, the evolution is right there in front of you, the same way it is in The Verdict.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, the movie, the movie, like, on its surface is, like, it's about a one-night stand that turns into something more meaningful. And, like, Mm -hmm. Andrea plays this sort of HR advisor who wants to, like, move up. And, like, she's, you know, 27 and wants to move up. And she doesn't get this promotion that she thought she deserved. And so she, um, because she's reserved and standoffish and so she decides like you know what I'm gonna have a one-night stand tonight I'm gonna break out of my shell and the guy she kind of like lands on at the bar is um uh this guy named Carter and he's a NHL hockey player who's just been sent down so like that's sort of the meat, cute of it and they 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 spend the night kind of walking around the city and get into a trip but it, you know so it sounds like before sunrise but set in Toronto um but it's not I I, I always try to like it's more I think it's 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 really like you said it's I wanted those characters to both have a change by the end of that night and a, and a, and a life kind of change that feels real, which is extremely hard to do when you have <laughs> a set time frame of like 12 hours that your movie takes place over the course of 12 hours. So, but yeah, Andrea is just amazing. You know, she really, I think just brought, I don't know, such real authenticity to that role. And, um, it's, it's these micro expressions and thoughts, the wheels turning that you can see in her, her performance. And, um, and, you know, I'm also very proud of the script. It was, it was, again, a a movie that each scene builds on top of the the next, there's nowhere to hide, can't hide any mistakes. There's no montages where they just fall in love. It's earned. I wanted everything to be earned. Even, you know, I don't know, the last shot of the movie um, I won't give it away, but we we show something that hasn't been seen in the in in any of the first you know ninety minutes of the movie, which you'd think a movie set in Toronto would show um and I wanted to earn that that's why I never showed that place that spot you want to earn it because ever I' never, you ever seen a movie about Toronto, you see that thing I probably people can guess what that is, now. <laughs> but you see it you're like, oh, I know you just sort of pointed out, and i didn't want I didn't want that I wanted to earn.
0: Yeah. And it also just feels more like a movie made by somebody who lives here because we don't think about that thing. Like, it's yeah. just there. Yeah,
1: it's just there.
0: <laughs> I used to work in that thing yeah. <laughs> um, when I was in yeah. high school.
1: Yeah, and it's like also that realism. I wanted like what is it really like to walk around at night in that spot in that and geographically correct as well. Yeah. You know, there's been Toronto-set movies where like wait they're in the beaches now. That is like <laughs> that's a long Queen Street sub uh, you know streetcar ride. That doesn't make any. They wouldn't jog all the way there. I wanted to really um, make it real and like you could retrace you know, our character steps in the movie and go to all those places, except for cold tea, which is closed, but is in a new location. So you could go there.
0: My thanks to Renika Jayapalan whose lovely first feature stay the night opens in Toronto and Vancouver this Friday, November 18th. Check it out. You won't be disappointed. Renika's not on Twitter, but you can find her on Instagram at R J. R J E Y A P A L A N. And you can find The Verdict on Blu-ray and DVD from Walt Disney Home Entertainment and streaming on Disney Plus in Canada. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at SEMCast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com SEMCast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is By the Last Year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.